How we doing? I am your host, Robert T. Gardner Jr., also known as Dr. Rob. Welcome to Station B.O.B. And let me tell you a little about thee. I am a kid from a Harlem hood who turned out good. I got educated like I should. Now I know how to help you grow to become the best of your being in life, love, and work. With that said, I am here to provide you with some clarity associated with the perplexity of the challenges in your life, love, and work. So, without further ado, let's get down on it. Enjoy the show. Ah, yes. How we doing? Welcome once again, my friend, to Station B.O.B., where you listen to learn how to become the best of your being in life, love, and work. And today, I'm very happy to be with you once again. And I believe I have a great podcast lined up for you with a special guest. Today's topic is From Prison to Purpose. Yes, that's right. I said it from prison to purpose. And I have a young man here with me who I met in church. And as we were getting to know one another, talking about where we grew up and how we grew up, we found that we had a lot in common. And so we talked a little more. And, you know, I talked about how I went to school and what I did in school. And then he told me, you know, how early in his life, some of the ways that he spent his time. And so what really makes this guest interesting to me is because growing up in Harlem, you know, I mean, Harlem was a good place, but it had its, you know, it had its challenges. And some of the guys I grew up with, they you know, entered into a life of crime in one way or another. Some some of my friends, some of the people I know, they s- sold drugs. And then there were others who, um, you know, there was a special type of crime when I was growing up, which, when um usually happened on the first and the 15th day of the month because that's when, you know, most of the, the residents of the public housing projects received their, their welfare checks or better known as public assistance. And so then there were, you know, other groups of, of youth who, you know, they snatched pocketbooks, you know, to to take away some of that money from from the women and mothers who were, you know, after they cashed their their public assistance checks. And so what I found interesting about my friend that I'm about to introduce to you is that as we were talking, he told me that, you know, long time ago as a as a youngster, um, he used to rob banks. I mean, he sold drugs and that was the that was the normal way of crime that I grew up with, you know, selling drugs, uh, snatching pocketbooks and, you know, other, you know, petty, petty larceny. But I told my friend that I had never in all my born days met somebody that robbed the bank. And so I just found that very interesting because that's something you see or used to see on television. And so, um, 
that made him even more special to me because for what he was doing then and what he's doing now just really, you know, brings to 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 light the uh, topic of the show from prison to purpose. So without further ado, I'm just going to introduce my next guest. His name is Equan, and he's from the um, Asbury Park, New Jersey. And um, Equan, say hello to the people. How you doing, everybody? I uh, just want to say hello, and um, I'm just pleased to be here today and try and impart with something that could possibly help someone. All right. Well, thank you. Well, I'm just so happy to have you. And um, let me check with the studio audience. Are you happy to have Brother Equan here today? Oh, that's great. I think they, too, will agree that you're going to make a contribution to the show. So I want to just start off by talking to you, you know, from the early days. You know, as a social worker myself, I understand that um, a lot that goes on in, in our adult life stems from what happens in our childhood. And so could you talk a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up? Like I grew up in a public housing project in East Harlem of New York, and um, you grew up in a public housing project, but did you grow up with uh, in a two-parent home or one-parent home, and what do you think contributed to, you know, some of the, the things you did earlier in life? Well, I grew up in a, actually grew up in a two-parent home, and um, I, I started this out in Belmar, Belmar, New Jersey, uh, primarily white shore town, and um and while I, while I was there, I started school there, Head Start, first grade, second grade. We moved <clears throat> to Asbury Park. And it was at this time that I had this culture shock because I was in school with a lot of Caucasians in Belmar. And when I got to Asbury, it was not one to be found. And um, that's where everything began to turn. And I began to become um, aware of who I was as um, a black kid. And um, my father and my mother, they showed me a lot of love. And I had a pretty good childhood, to say the least. And um, it wasn't until I got around in my teenage years, uh, 13, actually, because um, in my 14th year of life, things for me changed drastically when my mother died. Okay, so your mother passed away? Yes, my mother passed away when I was 14 years old. Um, at She was 40. And she had breast cancer. She had eight children. And um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the last one of her children to actually see her on March the 2nd, 1976, at which time she asked me, what was I going to do with my life? I had no idea at 14, which I told her. And I had no idea the path I was about to go down. So when you say that she asked you what were you going to do with your life, are you saying that this was like, um, you know, for lack of a better term, but was she on her deathbed at that time when she asked you that question? I would say so. And um, she actually passed away 2 o'clock in the morning on the 3rd. So it was hours after I had left that she passed away. But that's when she asked you, like, in other words, did she know that she or felt that she was going to pass away? That that I really can't answer precisely. I don't know actually what she felt, but I know what I've seen. And she was a shell of the woman that I have grown up with. So I guess what I'm getting at is what 
what do you think prompted her to ask you what were you going to do with your life? Well, me being one of the children, her fifth child, and um, just giving her most of the problems in school and things of that nature. So she felt that she needed to ask what was I going to do. And what did you say? I said to her my exact words verbatim was, Mom, I don't know. Wow. Okay. Well, 14, I mean, who who knows what they're going to do with their life exactly. at 14? I mean, there are some children that do, but I certainly was not one. And as you just said, you you were not one also who knew what he, you know, you were going to do. But go ahead, continue. So what happened after your mother passed away? Well, this is at a time when counseling wasn't the popular thing. So the only counseling you got was sit on that couch and be quiet. Sit on the couch and be quiet. And um, what happened was we became displaced. And um, my sisters, two of my older sisters, tried to step in and assume the position of mom. And this is where my problem started at, of not wanting to accept them as a mother. Okay, well, that's... That's understandable. I mean, we only get one. <laughs> you know, we we only get one. But when you say you didn't want to accept them as, as a mother, you knew that they were your sisters. And so, like, what were they doing that – now? and you're talking about two sisters trying to replace, you know, your the mother of all three of you. So what were they doing that you were resisting? Well, just – just um, being um, elder sisters and being who they were in my life and um, trying to regulate and enforce different rules and regulations to me that at that particular time, I was also going through the grief and of losing my mother. So I don't think that I was able to receive what it was, but even if it was seated in love, I just couldn't receive it because I was going through a grieving process that wasn't being addressed by anyone. Oh, okay. Well, that that makes sense. So now you have, you know, uh, your two older sisters in charge and running things. And at the same time, you're mourning and and probably not mourning because you weren't given a chance. Now your sister's on the set and they're saying, hey, this is how we're moving forward. Well, that's that's understandable. So what what you know, how did you respond to, you know, to that? Well, I began to act out in school, um, negative behavior, um, talking back, you know, the, the regular things that teenagers do. But I think mine was magnified by the fact that I was the, now the oldest male. I had a younger brother. My oldest brother had gone already to the service. <clears throat> and my sisters and I, we just clashed. We didn't see eye to eye. And I didn't think that they had the know-how how to handle me as uh, other than their brother as as mommy i couldn't i wasn't gonna see you in those shoes at all and i just acted out you know it was a lot of negative behavior um failing grades and just not doing the things that i was once doing because my happiness and a lot of things had just been taken from me on march the third when your mother passed away exactly wow so um so talk about um did you at what age did you start getting involved in illegal activities that wasn't until actually that wasn't until I was in my twenties because at eighteen I entered into the army, and I completed a three year um tour in the army and um you know went to Germany and seen seen little pieces of the world. But when I came back to Asbury in the eighties, cocaine had become popular, which it wasn't when I left. And 
me falling back into the same group of people. I uh, the the cocaine was in the Lord. Just people was selling it, and I used it for the first time. And uh, I just I just it was just the fact that I had used this, and it was something different. And it was a little bit of money they was making, but more so I became a user first before a seller. Okay, so while you are contemplating um, your early um, drug dealer endeavors, did you ever did it ever cross your mind what your mother asked you what are you going to do with your life? Not at all. Oh, so at this point you've been to the military. Um, you, now you're a young man, you know, young adult. If I you were a young man in high school, but now you're in your early twenties and you're a young man. So now we really stepping out there. So, okay, so no, it didn't cross your mind, um, you know, what your mother had asked you, what were you going to do with your life? So then what were you doing? Basically, for the most part, I came home from the service and did uh, nothing. I started collecting unemployment for about 24 months and utilizing some of that money to purchase drugs and, um, you know, just have a good time. I really had no sense of uh, direction. At that time, I even though I just left the service, I didn't go in with a plan. So, of course, I came out without a plan. Okay, so now as a drug dealer, how did you see that? Um, talk about that. Did you see yourself? You know, I, I know from my own experience, I mean, I I did uh, sell a little weed for a short period of time. But I was just, the reason why I sold weed, because, you know, the way I dressed and, and people used to think that I sold drugs. So I thought maybe, hey, maybe I need to. If people, you know, people are coming to me, maybe that's a um, an indication that I could probably make some money and, and, and enjoy some sort of success. Although I didn't see that, you know, in the long term. It, it's just that I was getting that kind of attention. So um, what I'm really getting at is I've came across a lot of young people back in the day that that thought that drugs you know was their ticket out the out the hood you understand did you see drugs selling drugs as your ticket out the out the hood no um actually no i didn't um because uh when i started i didn't see um uh, out the hood i didn't have an out the hood um attitude i lived in asbury um i was enjoying myself in asbury with the brothers and and we were just having a good time and I didn't set out to be sell drugs. I used, like I said, the beginning and, you know, you continue to be around people selling it and you see the celebrity, uh, uh, community celebrity prestige they get, you know, <laughs> um, for, for lack of a better term, um, you know, where, you know, there are you know, people running to them, you know, you got, you got, you got, and you know, then you want to be a part of that. It's, it seems to be a, a certain power that, you know what I'm saying, partnered with that. Oh, okay. Okay. So you were somewhat inspired by that. So did it get any deeper for you in terms of, um, you know, your drug, uh, selling endeavors? I mean, did you really start getting involved with selling drugs or you just kind of was getting high and, and selling, you know, at the same time? I mean, did you ever really make any inroads? No, I, um, actually really did get into it and, um, had a spot, um, in the Boston Way Village, which is no longer there, the buildings that were no, that, that were there in Building Seven, and um, this is where I set up shop at. And um, yeah, I did um, go back and forth, running back and forth to New York, buying drugs wholesale, retailing it in Asbury Park. But what what happened was, in the course of doing this, I was introduced to heroin. 
When you say that you were introduced to it, I just want to stop there because we're going to step to the side so I could let a a promo in. And then we, when we come back, we're going to talk about the whole idea that you were introduced to Heron and what happened at that point in your life. Have you read any good books lately? Your host, Robert T. Gardner Jr., also known as Dr. Rob, is the author of three great books. In his first book, The Choices We Make, Robert takes a look at relationships to help readers learn how to have a good relationship with themselves before they can have good relationships with others. In his second book, Access Denied, Robert brings an eye-opening perspective about what happens to children and fathers when their relationships with the mothers of their children end on bad terms. Robert explores what he calls child pawn when a parent, usually the mother, uses a child as a weapon to hurt the other parent. Robert provides a let-go lab in his book to help parents find positive ways to resolve their issues in the best interest of their children. Light Up Your Life is Robert's latest book. Robert writes about the fact that we are all born with a special God-given talent. Even though we are all born with a special talent, most of us miss our true calling. In this book, you will learn how to find your special talent and light up your life so that you can become the person you were born to be and live a more fulfilled, purpose-driven life. Books are available at barnesandnobles.com, amazon.com, and Robert's website, relationshipreadiness.org. Thank you, and back to the show. Okay, welcome back. And so when we left off, we were were speaking with Brother Equan about um, him just being uh, introduced to heroin or heron. I guess there's so many ways to to pronounce it. Now, today, it's called opioids. But back in the day, it was heroin. And so talk to us about your introduction to heroin and what that led to. Okay, let me just um, call it what it was called. It was dope. Okay, it was dope, and um, you mean dope as when young people say, "Oh man, that's dope," as it, it, as in metaphorically, right, right. Isn't that something that we would use a term that something good could be referred to as dope? And just before you get started or continue, I just wanted to say that my older sister overdosed on dope. So when I hear young people talk about, "Oh man, that was dope." I have a little trouble with that because, you know, I know it's slang and, and all those type of things, but dope is really, you know, especially at that time, you know. But go ahead, continue, Equan. Well, this uh, this was back in the 80s, and it was um, it was quite expensive back then. You'd get a bag for $20, and uh, it was a cousin of mine, and he was selling it, and I was wondering what was what it was, and he was telling me that, um, no, this ain't for you. And I said, I'm, I'm my own man, and... um. I finally finagled him and he gave me a bag and I sniffed it and didn't feel anything or didn't know what I was looking for. And, uh, only thing I did was vomited and, you know, the things that come along with the first bag. And, um, I tried it again and, um, I liked the laid back effect. I'm not really into the stimulants, but I like the laid back effect of it. So this is what kept me using it, not knowing that it was physically addictive when I was using it. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, did you get addicted? And two, did you ever mainline mainline meaning, you know, take a hypodermic needle and inject heroin into your veins? Well, let me answer that uh the first the uh, mainline part first. No, I've never 
injected or shot any dope ever. Um, my my choice was um, inhaling it. I sniffed it, and um, I'm going to say this: that it's there's still a. It's not. I'm not going to say it's the same effect, but I'm going to say some the the addiction is still the same, and that um, when I did find out I was addicted, it was by purely by mistake, and I thought I had a flu. Well, what do you mean that it was by mistake that you found out by mistake that you were addicted? I mean, I'm sure at this point you probably have spent hundreds and maybe even thousands of dollars to feed your habits. So how did you find out by accident that you were addicted? Well, let me just say this, that uh, when I did use the dope, it wasn't the traditional way like people go out there and you steal stuff and you got to buy it. Well, I was selling one product. I, I bartered cocaine for dope. Okay. And um, after my cousin, you know, I was, that was the introduction. Then I, other people that sold dope, I was hanging with another cat that sold dope. And um, I, in the morning, we would just, you know, do a speedball every morning, which is where you mix cocaine and dope together. Uh-huh. And one day I came out and he wasn't there and I was informed that he had got a parole violation. So he was locked up. Okay. So at that moment, I decided, I guess I'm not going to use dope anymore. Little did I know I was already hooked. Oh, so that's how you found that's a good way to find out by accident. Now, let me let me just share something with you in the audience. I know from my experience growing up in the projects, the uh the addicts, they would they injected heroin, you know, by hypodermic needle. I mean, doesn't that sound so uh that sounds so nuclear hypodermic needle? And so I wanted to ask you about this because I remember as a as a young kid, um, you know, 10, 11 years old, and I would be, you know, you, you couldn't help but engage with some of these heroin addicts because they were everywhere. And I remember they would nod out and, you know, sometimes nod out. I don't know how they were able to lean all the way down to to the ground, maybe holding the doorknob, but they would be in stuck in this nod. And then I you know, I remember I would have to get in the building so I can go upstairs and eat dinner or something. And I used to be like, um, excuse me, Eddie, excuse me. And then I'll never forget their response was like is that you, Bobby? Like, yes, yeah, me, it's me. I need to get in the building. All right, all right, Bobby. Uh, and that was the, the the type of sounds they would make while they were stuck in this nod. I, I'll never forget that. Did you have those type of experiences when you, you know, experienced heroin? Well, actually, no. And um, the people you're speaking about, um, I've been in their presence and. That was a generation before me, okay. Which was where where people were, you know, mainliners or going hard to the body, however you want to put it. These were the people from the the seventies who came with the with Claude Brown's book of Man Child of the Promised Land with the heroin. You know, yes, that was my that was my era because my sister actually my sister actually died in nineteen overdosed in nineteen sixty nine. So, so this is before the seventies. So the nod that you speak about is a nod that they was getting because they were putting the drug directly into their bloodline mm. their blood system so it was it was a much greater effect okay than okay. when you inhale it and it's introduced into your body more slower so there was no nodding on oh no there was nodding but not i never did the the nod dance and you know and you know and f- look like i was gonna fall but then pop right back up and i never did that but i have nodded i felt mellow and um yeah closed my eyes a couple of times but completely aware of what's going on have you have you ever overdosed on heroin? 
No, absolutely no. Well, uh, not not for sniffing it. I'm not even sure of anybody that has since not not back then. Nowadays with the fentanyl, of course, but with the back then it was morphine based. Okay, and that morphine, you know, it, it was a slow acting. So, like you know, I was able to at some point, one point, I was sniffing over ten bags a day. Okay, so let me ask you this because the, you know the the topic of the show is you know. From prison to purpose. So I want to, I want to move along, um, because I'm sure we understand, you know, your drug experience and, and what that was. But how did, did heroin have anything to do with you, you know, eventually being incarcerated? Absolutely. And what was that? Well, the first, the first incarceration at age of 27, um, when I took a, a raid at the place I spoke about earlier in Boston Way Village, one of the um, biggest parts that it played was the fact that I was high off heroin when they raided, and I wasn't even aware that they were coming in. When they came in and pulled me out of the bed, I didn't even know where they were police. Well, okay, I was just going to ask you, who raided and where were you when they raided? I was in the bedroom, and um, they... they um, kicked down, hit the door with the battering ram. I heard none of this because I was in a, a heroin induced sleep. This is <laughs> this is yeah. You know, the first time I've ever heard that term, heroin induced sleep. Yeah. So you weren't in a nod, but you were no, in the no, you were no. in a heroin induced sleep. I was no. dealing with the with the rapid eye movements at this point, and um, they came in and uh, and they put the light on me, and they had on jean jackets, bandanas, two Caucasians, might I add. And I thought they were robbing me because okay. of the fact they didn't have uniforms on. Man, that must have been some good drugs, man. You, yeah, but, you first of all, you're sleeping. They, they're banging on the door with that big door knocker thing where yeah. they can knock the door off the hinges. Right. Then they roll on you, and you think you're being robbed when you're really being arrested. Right. Woo-wee. Right. So, okay, so then what happened? Well, I, they pulled me out of the bed and to pulled me into the hallway, at which time the door's right there. I see the battering ram on the ground. Now I realize they're police. Okay. I don't know who all's in the house because when I went in, it was just myself, the woman that lived there, and another brother. But when I went into the living room where they had everybody, they, had, they pretty much herded us to the living room. There was four more people there. Well, let me ask you, what led the police to come through the door like that usually when when the police get on to you that means you're making some noise you're doing something not making noise like you know loud noise but you know you you've got a little rep going in terms of um you know people are coming to you you got a big customer base like what led the police to raid the place where you were sleeping well, let me um, let me just clarify that about big you, you not big as in like you know big time drug dealer but just traffic well, that's the it same was, thing. It, it okay, was the traffic and um, outside of that, it was a CI, which is a confidential informer, who met with them a couple of streets over. They searched him, gave him the money. He came in. They told him who to look for. I was the target. He came in, didn't purchase it from me, but went back, said he did. At that time, they contacted the judge, got a search warrant and a no knock search warrant, and busted the door. So they rolled on you, exactly. Okay, so now you're getting arrested. Um, let's fast forward. Mm-hmm. You're in prison now. Yes. Or, or no, you, no. you don't go to prison. No, I go to a, I go actually go to a, um, youth correctional facility at the time. It was called Annandale. Now it's called Mountain View. Okay. Even though you were 26 years old, they sent you to a youth. Uh, 20, yes. Okay. So 
briefly talk about that. What, so what happened? First day, what are you thinking? Do you remember your mother now? Now are you remembering what your mother said? Uh, what are you going to do with your life? Let me just, before we even get to Annandale, this started in the county jail. Okay. That's, that's initially where I went and um, bailed out and then eventually went down. You got sentenced. I got sentenced. To, how long was your first sentence? Two five flats. What the heck is two five flats? A five flat is a is a um, a sentence that's given to you without a mandatory minimum, meaning that you know, saying I was allowed to be uh, paroled within fourteen months. Okay, okay. So two five flats. Okay, everybody got that. Running concurrent. Okay, running concurrent. So how long did you do? About thirteen months. Thirteen months. Would you say that's a long time for a young man twenty six years old to be incarcerated? I would say it's a, a long time for me, this being my first charge and not knowing what was going on. But then I want to say this also that it it all it did was heighten me to the point where I was like, well, prison is not that bad. Being locked up is not that bad because you know you in there with people you know and you know how that goes. Oh, so you was like around the way, yeah, pretty much. So so let me ask you this: uh, Were you in prison or were you in the youth no, detention no, center? No, mama, I was in the Mama County. I mean, excuse me, I was in um um. Um, Annandale, which is a, a youth correctional facility, they call it. So it just so happened that you wind up in a place where some of your, where your homies uh, were also residents. Yeah, so. we were all basically the same age. It wasn't like I was a, the old head there. We were basically in that same age limit. Okay, okay. So now you're there. You know, what are you thinking? What's happening? Well, I'm in I'm in Cottage Seven, and um, you know, we um, a lot of brothers there. We going outside, we going to the yard, spending the yard, you know, working out, uh, singing. I sing, so I'm singing with a couple of brothers, and um, just basically for the most part, you know, saying this sounds crazy, but just have, having a good time. <laughs> yeah, you you see me like you know, I just want to step away from you for a second. I always. Um, had the idea that I was never going to, you know, to jail or prison. I just saw that as just a kind of, um, a scary thing. I remember the young guys in my neighborhood who kind of, uh, were like you in terms of they inter- they entertain like illegal activities and they would get locked up and they used to say to me Bobby man you you could never go to Rikers because that was the local that was the local lockup in my neighborhood Rikers Island and they'd be like you could never you should never go to Rikers man they're gonna take your hood or they would say that to me and the rest of my friends they'll take your hood in Rikers so um, it wasn't that I was necessarily concerned about that it was just the idea of being locked up but so now you're having a good time okay so um continue on well well let me just clarify also when i say a good time not as as like one would have like you know you're having a party but um it it, the prison experience that i thought would be or just being locked up appearance wasn't what it was you know what i'm saying there was a whole lot of you know we were making hookups and we laughing and joking it it, it was no it wasn't nothing serious there were you able to still get high while you were i never me personally i never got high while i was there but there were other people getting high um, I'm pretty sure there was. Okay, okay, okay. So now your time is up at Annandale. Annandale. Oh, Annandale. Okay, so now your time is up, um, and you're home. So now what's happening? Well, I come home on parole and um, don't have a plan again. And, okay, um, well, to talk about no plan, help the young people understand the idea of not having some kind of plan or idea what you want to do with your life. All right, that's a good question, and. This I'm going to answer, and, I, and this is to anybody that's listening. When, when, whether you get locked up, whether you're um, at home, wherever, in order to succeed in life, 
you have to formulate a plan. You have to begin to align your behavior with those goals in order to achieve them if they're unachievable. If you don't align your behavior with that goal, you're not going to achieve it. I can promise you that. So I came home a lot of times with no plan, and so I planned to fail. So I came home and found myself right back where I started at Square A, back in the projects, back selling drugs, back sniffing heroin, and it was as if nothing stopped, nothing ever happened. So do you think your lack of a plan was all, you know, related to the fact that your mother died, you know, and then, you know, you had your sisters who kind of were now imposing their will on you? I mean, like, like why did you not have some idea of what you wanted to do in life? Well, might I add that um, I, I chose to be in the streets. I chose to be out there and hang out. I chose to be out in the streets and, and um, hang out with the brothers out there in the street. That's what I chose to do. Good brothers, might I add. Um, and we all make our own choices. You know, we are where we are by a series of choices that we make. And I made a series of choices that landed me in as um, with heroin, landed me um, um, incarcerated, landed me um, walking the streets, acting crazy. But, and it also landed me into recidivism or coming back and forth. Okay, so that's interesting that you said um, it was your choice to be in the streets. It's interesting because I wrote a book, you know, entitled The Choices We Make. And really, the main point of that book is that no matter what you do in life, whether you are rich whether you are broke, whether you have two homes, four children, three baby mamas, uh, enjoy a lot of success, life comes down to the choices we make. That, that's, that's the bottom line. And you just heard Brother Equan said he chose to, to run the streets, to be in the streets. Sometimes we're in the streets because of, of peer pressure. But I'm, I'm taking you didn't have the peer pressure. You just really made that choice. No, I made to, it, I made this choice. I'm I'm from a, a family of eight. And um, of the eight, I'm the only one that made that choice. And this is where I wanted to be at the time in, in my early twenties. And this is where I was. I mean, I, I was on. The, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm back then. They didn't use the term "doing me," but I guess I was doing me. Okay. Okay. Wow. So, all right. So you're back on the streets without a plan. What now? Well, it's back to selling drugs. Um, I'm on parole, um, violated. Okay. On the run. On the run. On the but run. On the run for, for well, what? Violating well, well, parole? Well, what happens is parole is only saying that we now trust you to finish your sentence on the street. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And it comes with conditions. And I had violated the conditions. I was, one, was not, not to get high. You know, I had a dirty urine. And um, I didn't get a job at the time. And um, I wasn't reporting. So all of these things, you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying, mandate that you get sent back. Okay. So I was going to pay up when they catch up, you know, so I got on the run. So would you just would you say that you just didn't give a damn? For lack of a better term. So what, when when the person doesn't give a damn, would you say that you didn't love yourself enough, you didn't care enough about yourself, or, or was it not that? No, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I didn't love myself. I would say that it was just that, I wasn't in touch with myself no more at this point. I was just doing, pre- I was in what, with, with, I had that when in Rome, do it the Romans attitude. Okay. And this is what I was doing. When in Rome, when in the projects, do it, do it. I didn't grow up in the projects. I grew up on, in a house. Right. You know what I'm saying? But this is what I gravitated towards. And this is where I enjoyed being at. I enjoyed the, everything about the projects, about the people, everything. Wow. Okay. I mean, I did the projects too and it was, it was great, but I just had a different experience. I used to see myself, I used to say, I, I got to get out of here. 
And I did have a dream. Um, I wanted to be a businessman. You know, I didn't know what type of businessman, but I knew that I wanted to get out because it was a lot of violence, poverty, heroin. I mean, it was just a lot of stuff. And I saw, you know, I saw my way out. So how many times have you been incarcerated? I've been arrested 25 times, 11 felony convictions, and about 10 and a half years of prison. Wow. Wow. So let's talk about when you went to prison, a.k.a. the big house. What 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 was that like? Well, when I came home on this next charge, and um, after that charge, I came home and I started back with the heroin and um. Now I understood that, and I had what what a I understood what um um a chippy was and a habit was, and I knew I had a habit, and I had to feed this habit, and you know I I was my best customer, so I didn't have any drugs, so I began to do things I would I would do, um burglaries I would rob, and one day I just got up one day and I said you know what, I know where some money is at, and where was that? That's at the bank. The bank? Yes, at the bank. Wait, so you woke up and said, so did you have any money in the bank? No, I had absolutely nothing there. Did did you have a debit card? There weren't none at the time. Did you have a a bank account? No, I didn't. But you saw that there was some money in the bank. Yeah, and I had a check. Okay, so let me just say this. We're going to step aside and let a promo in. And on the other side of the promo, Equan is going to talk about the day he woke up and he, he figured out that there was some money at the bank. Relationship Readiness Life and Work Preparedness Services, the place you come to for coaching, consulting, and counseling in life, love, and work. We are a multi-purpose service organization that will coach you up, educate, guide, and motivate you to succeed. We provide management training and consulting services for all businesses in the areas of employee relations, unionized employees, progressive discipline, the annual review process, and emotional intelligence to develop effective leaders for your organization. And our relationship counseling services for individuals, couples, groups show you how to become relationship ready with improved self-esteem, resilience, and self-awareness. To learn more about our programs and services, please contact Robert T. Gardner Jr. by email at changeagentrtg at gmail.com or request a meeting for a free one-hour consultation at relationshipreadiness.org. Thank you, and let's go back to Station B.O.B. Okay, welcome back. Well, as you know, I always like to take a minute to laugh. I think it's good to laugh. We need a we need a laughter break because life is full of stress. And for some, this topic, although I find it very powerful and enlightening, but, you know, it can also be stressful. So we need to think of something that's funny and let's take a second or two and just laugh. <laughs> okay, I always find that funny and I'm just laughing about nothing. But I feel I feel good when I laugh. I feel relieved. Then I like to crack jokes and laugh. And so continuing on with Brother Equan, uh he said that, you know, one day with his heroin um habit that he woke up because he needed some more money and he was thinking about some ways, 
you know, that he can get his hands on some more money. And he came up with the bright idea that there was more money at the bank. So tell us, what did that mean that there was more money at the bank? Were you going to meet your grandmother for a loan or were you going to fill out a loan application? Exactly what were you going to do well, at the bank? Well, what I was going to do is um, go in and um, take what I could take and um, keep it moving. And um, this didn't just come up. I had had some practice. I went into a couple of stores prior to this and, you know, and I mean, came off with whatever. Now, when I say come off, it's nothing big. It's not like you can't retire with it, but you can't get high with it. Are, are you saying that you robbed some stores? Prior, prior to this. Now, how did you rob them? Uh, armed robbery? No, or I'm saying some, sometimes just verbal commands. And, um, you know, it's it's funny what people think the illusion that you can create and people will move based upon that, that illusion that you create. And, you know, I was able to give some verbal commands and, and receive what I came for. Wait, wait, you telling me that you walked into some stores with, were they bodegas? No, it was, they were stores. They were, let's just say they were stores around the way. Okay. So you, with your good looking self, you walked into a store and demanded money, what, by note or with a note or you just. No, this was just all just, just acting crazy. Okay. And so did you get any money when you yes, demanded money? Absolutely. Like what type of, how much like this? Um, yeah, a couple of hundred. A couple of hundred. And That's you right. were able to walk out of a store yeah. or run out. Which, which did you do? Did you walk no, out of running? I walked in and walked out. Oh, you was a bad dude. Not really. Well, you got to remember, I'm going back to the 80s, and um, this is before flat screen TV. This is before 4K. This is before all of these different um, 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 cameras everywhere. So a lot of times all they had when the police got there was a description that they would give, and it's not always accurate. Okay. Oh, okay. Especially since all black people look alike, yeah, right? That, that What'd you say? A, hey, that helped. Okay, so that means you can just grab any black person, you yeah, know? Pretty much. Okay, <laughs> get a, uh, what they call it, uh, DWB, driving while black. Yeah, you, you know? Hey, just pull that? one over and, hey, he did it. Hey. So... Wow, so let's fast forward to, you know, the idea now that you go into the bank. So did you did you have um some hardware with you? What happened no, at the absolutely. bank? Absolutely. I I'm gonna tell you this, I I did give it some thought. Cause now I realize that this was something that could possibly turn out bad. Mm. You know, I, I did give it that much thought, but I mean but in the same breath. I was sick because you they, when you don't get the heroin in the morning, they call it being dope sick. And I'm going through the you know the changes, hot and cold sweats and everything. Um, I'm almost to the verge of the diarrhea, the spitting up. So now I say I got to move fast while I still can move. Wow, wow! So, but I still had doubt as to whether I was going to do that going to a bank. Wait, wait! Did you have doubt whether you were going to get you know a firearm, a gun, or no, uh, or, or go into the bank? You no, know, I knew that you could go in there and that you could give them a note and that they would pass the money off because it's insured. Okay, but you say you knew that you didn't really know that just because it's insured. Do you think they just well, going to turn their money over to I'm you because from, from from past robberies that I had read about and everything, and you know that. I was assuming that it was an easy thing to do, but I, it was also in the same breath. I never read about what happened to those people that did it, but I knew that it probably couldn't have been that good. Well, you know, I, I grew up at a time, and you, 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 you're right behind me. I grew up at a time where a lot of, there were a lot of movies, Bonnie and Clyde, and you know, there was just a lot of movies about people robbing banks, and um, that it never turned out good. That is a federal crime, and there's usually a some kind of armed law enforcement officer on the premises and you know 
Uh, the tellers have buttons that they can press right underneath, you know, their counters and, and just, you know, alert the police without you even knowing. So go ahead. So what happened? Well, I'm, I'm just going to say this. A lot of these things that you just mentioned, um, they happen on television. Um, a lot of these things just on, <laughs> in real life just don't happen. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, just, 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 just picture the average person that came to work with the idea of doing a nine to five, going home and perhaps going to movies later on to be encounter a person coming in saying they're going to shoot them. Uh-huh. The type of fear that it instills in them. A person that does, this is a law-abiding, tax-paying person who's working at the bank. Okay. Never been approached like this. Here you come. Now, mind, you said you said a good-looking guy like you, you got mind, I was a heroin addict. I wasn't looking like this. Okay, you know, okay. I, I was looking like a heroin addict. Wow. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, and when I went in there and I passed it, but then, I remember this back up when I said that I gave it some thought. I gave it some thought and it was, Something happened this day that was strange. I sat there and I wrote the note out and I said, Yeah, I'm gonna get a note and da 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 said, Nah, I better not do that. And the radio was on. At the time it was KISS. Mm-hmm. It was the radio station. KISS FM. Yes. And a song came on. How I wanted this song was by Shalomar. And it was Make That Move Right Now. Well, okay, okay. And that song, I felt like it was talking to me. And, and how my, was it talking to you? Well, just the fact that it came on when I was indecisive as to what it was I was going to do. Okay. And the song came on because I, I needed something to push me that next to that next move. And when that song came on, I said, that's it. I'm going. Wow. Listen at this. I went in a cab and left in a cab. So did you have the cab waiting for you? Yes, I did. So did the cab know what you were doing? Absolutely not. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because if I was a cabbie, I would not have been out there when you came out. Yeah. So, okay, so you go into a bank and you do what? I passed the note off, um, received the money. Wait, 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 let's talk about the note. What was the response to the teller when you passed the note? And what did the note say? Well, the note said, um, give me the money before I blow your face off. Okay, okay. So, so now I mentioned to you earlier that imagine coming to work with the intention of having a good day only to be right a note like this. So give me, give me, so give me the I money. The fear that registered on the face of this person, woman. And, um, and then I began the verbal commands of what to give me, but she didn't follow the commands as the, the denomination that I asked for. What did, how much did you ask for? No, I didn't ask for a certain amount. I asked for a certain denomination. Oh, do you want tens, twenties? Yeah, no, I said, I, I said, give me hundreds and fifties. Okay, but how much did she you ask me, for? No, I didn't say you, I didn't want to know whatever they added up to is what I was going to get. Well, suppose she would only give you a hundred and, 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 and one fifty. That's a hundred and fifty dollars. No, 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 I said hundreds and oh, fifties. Okay. Plural. Okay. But she gave me a stack of 20s. She gave you, so were you upset that she didn't listen to you and follow well, your instructions? Well, no, at the time, at the time, my whole thing was to get out of there as soon as possible. Okay. So when she handed me the money, I had a hat and I put it my put the money under the hat and I walked out. And mind you, the place is it's early in the morning. It just was probably open for about a half hour. Now no customers. It's at the Seaview Mall, and um, there's not no longer there anymore. And um, I walked out, and then you had to walk past this long glass um area we could see in the in the bank. They looking at me. I'm leaving. I get into a taxi and I leave. So was there no armed security guard there? Not one. Okay, okay. So how much money did you leave with? $1,300. $1,300. Was it worth it to you at the time? At the time it was. You were not annoyed that she didn't follow your instructions? You know, no. I mean, you only got $1,300. No, as an addict, I was happy because now I was about to go be able to go and feed this habit. 
And did you buy $1,300 worth of drugs? No, I didn't. I, I, at, the t- at the time when I went back, I seen a, a brother that had something, and I got two bags at the time just to get off of E. Okay. And then once I got off E, I bought some work, some coke to sell, and I bought more dope, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then a couple of days, everything was gone. So um, I don't know if the banks had cameras back then, but did you start to feel any heat, hear anything that the police were looking for? No, it, was in, it was in the paper, and they had a, um, a composite drawing. Like I said earlier, they didn't have the cameras, uh-huh. but they did have cameras, but they, they couldn't go by that picture. They had a composite drawing, and the person that they had, I'm sitting in the house, and they said, oh, man, somebody robbed the bank. He said, man, look at the picture, and they start saying it was somebody else. Uh-huh. I looked at the picture, and it certainly did look like somebody else. Oh, so you, you, you okay, so you, I guess you felt somewhat relieved that oh, yes. it, they yes. didn't have you, you know, they didn't have your good looks down to a T. Absolutely. Okay, wow. So did you ever get caught for that? Not for that one, because I did another one. Oh, you did another one? Yes. Being that this thing was so easy. Wow. I decided to do another one. Would you say that was easy money? What, what What's easier, going to an ATM machine and, and uh, you know, withdrawing money or robbing the bank with a note? I would say, realistically, going to an ATM and withdrawing money. Um, in that world, going to going there with a note. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's just a because that, there is that was just a joke. But yeah, I know, but um, um, yeah, I did the second one, and this this is the this is the crazy part again with the taxi where you mentioned that if uh, had it been you, you wouldn't have been there when I came out, right? But the person I used this time did know me. Oh, he knew you. Yeah, he knew me. So he waited. For, did he know you were going to do that? Absolutely not. He was not a willing participant in what was going on, and I wasn't going to use him. But I had had a. Three minute conversation with him, and I knew I needed a cab. It would look strange getting in another cab, so I got in his cab. Right. We went to one place I didn't feel comfortable there. I told him to take me to another location. Oh, you mean you you had an opportunity to pick out which bank you were going to rob yes, because yes. You, you just didn't feel comfortable? Yeah, I went in and the tellers were men, and I mean you got to remember I'm 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 moving off of being sick. Right. So they were te- the tellers were men. So they might, I thought in my mind they might want to feel like heroes, don't want to get the money yet, want to tussle. Okay. I don't got time for that. And you all black and everything. Yeah. So yeah, I said yeah. I, I don't want no. See the thing about a thing about crime is we take the path of least resistance. Okay, that makes sense. And so I didn't want a whole lot of resistance. So I said, yo, this ain't the right one. We went to another one, and it was at this one where I went in, and um, he waited for me outside, and I did what I did at the first one. Came back out, felt like I was over again, got into the car. Oh, you mean you got the money? Got the money. You gave the note? Gave the note, got the money. How much much did you get this This time? This time it was only $700. Man, you're doing bad, man. Yeah, yeah, actually, there's no plan to it. Right, right, right. There's no plan to it. And um, I, I got into the car and didn't know that they was looking out the window watching us drive off. And I got into the front seat. Remember, I told you I knew him. Right. So I got into the front seat. They they looked at the cab, seeing where it came from and everything, went to the stand and got him. Okay. Meanwhile, he dropped me off already. Okay. So I, I'm in a, I'm, I'm believing that everything is like it was last time, not knowing that as I'm about to get high again, he's being questioned. Okay. Like he's being questioned. And this guy did everything he could not to tell on me because he knew me personally. Okay. But when it became a, a, a matter of, of him or me, he did what anybody would, would do. He wasn't a willing participant. He got no money other than the fare that I paid. Not even a tip. You didn't even tip him? Absolutely not. You didn't, I didn't tip want to, your I didn't, getaway driver? No, what kind I, of bank robber are you well, after all? Well, a getaway driver is only a getaway driver <laughs> when they know you're going to rob the bank. <laughs> oh, that's right. He didn't know. <laughs> he didn't know. Okay. So I gave him the $13 out of a $20 bill because I got 20s again. And you and took he, the change? You took he, the change? I took the $7 change. And I said, listen, I'll talk to you later. Man, you're a real generous bank robber, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. So, okay, 
So now you robbed the bank. Um, well, you know, I want to point out that back then, I guess it wasn't out. You know, the whole idea uh, snitches get stitches. And so he snitched. Did he rat you out? No, yeah, you know, that's the thing about that. Let me just touch on that about stitching. Snitching is when two people participate in a crime. One gets busted, one doesn't, and the other one decides that he's going to tell. The one that gets busted tells on the other one. Right. You participate. He was not a willing participant, so he didn't snitch because he had no idea why was he being brought in for questioning. Once he realized what was going on, because I admit I had the motion discovery, his statements, for a long time he kept saying he didn't know who I was. And what made them think that he knew me because I got into the front seat. New Jersey law says that a passenger has to ride in the back. Right, okay. When I got into the front, that made it appear that we were in cahoots with one another. And he just had a newborn baby, a new job. He had a lot of things to be out here for. And when he told, and my stinking thinking, I'm in the county jail once I'm locked up and everything by the FBI. I'm in there saying, like, oh, Miss Joker Snitch, Joker Snitch. But let me just say this. Fast forward, years later, I had an opportunity to apologize and make amends because he didn't snitch on me what he did was did the right thing he said listen i ain't had nothing to do with it and then finally he had to realize he said look all he knew me was as a, as equine he didn't know my government name right but i had already been locked up before that was it so equine was an alias okay so when they looked at equine they you know boom you know i came up with my government name and he and um they was on me I mean, on me, like, you know, and they, I, I'm hearing about it. I'm hiding out till it got dark and I tried to leave town and, you know, the, the FBI caught me at a train station. They found you at a train station? Yeah. The FBI, to, trying, right? Yeah, federal crime. Here's the crazy part, trying to go where? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't even know where I was going. Wow. Yeah, that reminded me of a song The Temptations had, Runaway Child. Yeah, didn't know. You're what on I'm your own at last. Hey, it's getting late. Where will you sleep? Can uh, can I add one more thing before we get to the sure. to the prison part about um years later I had an opportunity to read something about the profile of a person that robs a bank with a note. Normally it's a person that's on drugs. Normally they don't have a plan and normally they just mess the money up on drugs. Fit it to the T. Wow. That's amazing. But I find it amazing that you could rob a bank with a note and the person was, were the tellers behind gl- glass windows? Um, I'm, I'm not, you know what? It's been so long ago now because I'm, I'm, I'm going back to 90 and, um, I don't particularly remember whether it was a I know it wasn't a full glass as if like you got the pandemic nowadays. Right. But back but in the was, day, I'm from New York and and banks had glass panels. Well, you live in the metropolitan area out here, you know, that's it's that, New Jersey. It's, it's yeah. Not, it's like it's uncommon for people to walk in a robber bank. Right. Like okay. 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 So, but I I'm, and I'm going to add this also that with this robbing of the banks and doing other little things, none of this stuff is who I am. I understand. It is who I became uh-huh. by way of drug use. So I say, say no to drugs. Okay. Uh, with that said, um, this is where the, um, the prison, this is where I went from having a 105-397 number to a 219-629 number, which is now state prison number. And um, was given uh, a twelve with a, a twelve with a six, a ten with a five, a five with an eighteen, and a five flat. All under well, well, let me ask you: You went to a state prison, although you committed a federal crime. Well, it was handled on the state level. Okay, because a, a certain amount, you know, what I'm saying, automatically mandates that it's handled with the feds. And then if it's lesser than oh, okay. that amount, then, okay. you know, the state handles it. Okay, okay. So now let's talk about prison. Now you're in prison. You're not around the way with, with the rest of the boys and, and all no, of that. No, still, you still with this. This is New Jersey. And probably in New York, too. And I've looked at a lot of different things. When people go to prison, what happens is you're separated by counties. Okay. 
um, not that you're separated, but you tend to gravitate towards your county toward the people you know. Right. And then, you know, and so like, for instance, let me say, if you was in a federal um, prison and you went to another state, you'd probably graduate, um, gra- gravitate to people from New Jersey. Right. The further away you get from home, if you was in another planet, you'll graduate or graduate, gravitate to people from Earth. Right, so, right. So, yeah, we was, uh, again, it was, this, remember now, crime, you know, we, it's hard to change the stripes. So the same people that was in Annadale, Continue with the you know okay. saying, the crime and okay. they graduated to prison too, so okay. you know so we all locked up again. Mm-hmm. And um, but the only difference in this one was that now I have a substantial amount of time. And how much time was that? That that twelve with the six. The twelve. So 12 you had years, six years. I had to do I, yeah twelve. I had to do six years, but I ended up doing six years, eleven months, and thirteen days. Wow, you got it done. How many minutes? Now, now listen, I lost track because I didn't have a watch. <laughs> I didn't have a watch. Wow, wow. So you did six years? 11 months and 13 days. Wow. So so at what point or was there a point where you saying, damn, you know, I need to stop going back and forth to no to, to prison? No, no. That's not what I was saying. Um, At the beginning of this particular bid, what I was saying was I was calculating the time because had, I had what's called the parole ineligibility I mean, I had a certain amount of time I had to do before I was eligible for parole. Right. I was trying to count the number from 90, and I kept coming up with 98. Uh-huh. I said, there's no way in the world I'm going to be locked up to 98. What do you mean, 98, the, the year 1998? Yeah, yeah, okay. And I'm saying, now it's just, you know, it's only 90. Well, when I was paroled, it was January 29th, 1998. Wow. So you did all the time. Yeah, well, yeah, and I, I had, you know, some, some parole left, but, uh, yeah, I did a large amount. I was 30, I was 30 when I went in, and I, I was 37 when I came out, about to turn 38. So let me just ask you real quick. There are a lot of young um, cats, you know, that I grew up with, and, and you even hear it now, you know, I'm not in circulation in terms of being in the, in the neighborhoods and on the streets, but you hear it, you know, people kind of um, – you know, they, they, um, what do you care? They make prison okay. You know, like prison is, you know, like you can handle it. You can do it. Is, is, is prison okay? Well, I'm going to say this. I've, I've, I'm 20 years out. You know, I've been, I was released in 2001, December the 21st. I haven't been back. So we're talking about two decades ago. The, the landscape and the um, people in prison nowadays has changed considerably. No, what I'm asking is, is that something that a young, you know, African-American kid should be considering, you know, that I can join the gang because I can do I can do the time that I should rob this store or I should shoot somebody because I can do the time because I know who people who did. Is that something that young people should be thinking that that it's OK to do that? No, I don't I don't think that they should be thinking that it's OK. But however, I do want to say this, that prison has become, um, for lack of a, a better term, that has become the passage to manhood with a lot of African American young men. Well, that's a damn shame. I'm going to tell you that right now. That's a damn shame. It's also reality. Yeah, true that. True that. So, what about prison? How was the food? Like, did you did you have your own diet? Like, what happened? Well, unfortunately, and I'm using the word loosely fortunately because there's nothing fortunate about going to prison, but um, I was there at a time when you had a lot more things. Like, today's prisoner has nothing. You know, you don't have your own clothes. You don't, you can't get outside food. You can't taste mom's cooking no more. None of that stuff no more. Okay. You know, no food packages from the, you know, they can't send you nothing. Everything is purchased in-house. Okay. And you got to wear what they sell you. Everybody's wearing states. Browns or whatever you're wearing 
But when I was there, you wear what you want to wear. There was you could still go to school. I graduated high school while I was there. Okay, um, people were going to college. People were changing their names legally. Um, you know, um, money was flowing. It was it was it was a uh, it wasn't even like it was prison. Okay, wow, wow. So did you find anything beneficial? Say, you know, I don't mean like in a good way, but something beneficial that you learned the hard way that helped you kind of see. You know that you need need to be doing something different, or when did you realize that you should be doing something well, different? Well, uh, for lack for before, um, because of uh, the time, you know, we, we we have a time constraint. Um, that wasn't the last time I was locked up. You know, what I'm saying I had a third a third incarceration. Which wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. You told me you did six months, uh, six years, mm-hmm. eleven months, two hours and seventeen minutes and thirty two seconds, mm-hmm. and you went. You got locked up again. You want to? Uh, you got to hear this. Um, I went to a halfway house in Trenton called Clinton House, and while I was there, I, I was walking a straight and narrow path. And um, one day, I um, went down a, a street that I normally wouldn't go down to go back to the halfway house. And this was a street that where they saw heroin at. It's called Stockton in Trenton. And I went down there, and I seen a young. I'm walking big as a house, and you know, got a book bag and everything. And um, I see a young Puerto Rican kid, and I know he's a hustler. You know, a hustler. When you come from that world, you recognize it right. where you go. So I've seen him. So I walked past him that first day. I made it my point to go down that street the next day. Only this time, I called him. I said, "Yo, come here." But he's looking at me. I guess he's saying he don't look like he get high, so he's leery of me. I said, "Yo, come here." So when he came, I said, "Yo, how much is it?" At, when I went away, it was twenty dollars a bag. Now it's fifteen. He had something called turbo. I bought a bag. Wow! And I'm in the halfway house. Okay, so you bought a bag. I bought a bag and went to the halfway house, sniffed the bag. I wasn't smoking cigarettes, nothing, but sniffed the bag. Sniffed the bag and then started all that smoking cigarettes and then I started going down there on the regular and caught another habit while I was in the halfway house. And I so roll with a habit. So so wow. So eventually, you were locked up again for how much time? Well, no. This first of all, when I got paroled with this habit, I got out. Like I told you, January twenty ninth, March the twelfth, I was locked up again on a parole violation. For how long? Until I maxed out April the second, so I don't understand how long was that. The, well, it was from March the twelfth until April the second. Oh, so just a month? Yeah, because I that, I was finishing up the sentence. I got paroled. Oh, 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 you got paroled. Oh, I get, I get yeah, it. I so get I it. I got, I got, I got violated for dirty urine when I finally reported and I had transferred over to Mercer County. I got the dirty urine. They locked me up. Now, normally, I thought I would have got out because it was a technicality, but they was taking prison. I mean, excuse me, they was taking heroin very serious because a previous parolee had killed his um, girlfriend or something like that. So okay. Now, you know. Okay. Wow. So let me ask you this now. So now let's just fast forward to you out of prison and because you're working now and you have a doggone good job. So what happened? When did you get it together that you decided that, you know what, drugs, heroin is not the way? I uh, haven't been a very uh, profitable, uh, <laughs> you know, drug dealer. And <laughs> it's brought me a lot of uh, grief, so to speak, just in terms of, you know, your prison time and, and things of that sort. When and what made you turn it around? I'm going to tell you, this is. This was some. This was something different. It always takes something different to turn it around. And and I had become dissatisfied with this prison life, and that's what really brings about change, dissatisfaction. And on this next bit, I was about to do. I thought I was going to go down to Southwood State Prison because I'd never been there. I said, "Well, I'll go down there." You know, like like it was nothing. I'm saying, like matter of fact, 
So when I got to a place called Craft, which is the central reception, you know what I'm saying, for the prisons and stuff like that, right? And assessment center. And I got there, and normally I go down. I don't get no breaks. And I got to this place, and I went to classification, and they asked me would I take a program. And I immediately said yes. What do you mean, would you take a program? What does that mean? Meaning that instead of going to, as an alternative, as an alternative to going to prison, would you take a program? At the time, they had different drug treatment programs and everything that try to help you, you know, um, um, put you back into society, help you transition you okay. know what I'm from that, that life. And so I said, yes, I'll take it. And I, I was fortunate. I went to Bo Robinson while I was there. and, I, and what, I, is, what is Bo Robinson? Bo Robinson is a, another another assessment center where they assess you whether you have a serious drug uh, problem or, or say if you're a violent criminal, you know, saying they send you to different halfway houses. In my case, they, they determined through, you know, intake and everything that I was I had a drug problem that was the leading course of me continuing to come to prison and catching these drugs. okay so they sent me to Tully House but while I was at Bo Robinson something happened um a brother that was the head court house coordinator he left and brothers told me they said brother you speak pretty well you should run for that position I said oh and I wanted you know unanimously and that position is like what position was that? It's called coordinator of the house. You have two sides to this um, particular program, patience and hope. And I was the coordinator for hope. And what I did was I ran the morning meetings. I would, you know, hit the podium, boom, Brooks family, my three motivations and a goal. And the, the, the spirit, the fast forward, in other words, this began to wake up something in me, a desire, because they call you, they don't call you inmate, they don't call you by number, they call you mister, and stuff like that. So I was beginning to like the sound of being respected. Wow. You know, something I hadn't been in a long time. You know, wow. when I say, yeah. not that I was disrespected, but I'm saying, like, you know, fiend, or, you know, you, you sitting there, you feeling down, when you sitting in court with a bunch of people you don't know, and I'm at one time, I'm the only black, and, I'm, and they, got a, they brought a class there to see the how the system work and they looking at me like I'm some type of an animal. And I mean, it was just so many things that I experienced with the system. But just one time that I began to feel better and they called me Mr. Brooks, Mr. Brooks, Mr. Brooks. And it woke up something in me. And what it woke up was, was already there because I found out that everything that you are to become, you already are. Yeah. You already are enough. You just, yeah. sometimes we just, don't know that, and, and you and then one of them, one of the commercials earlier where it said, "Let your light shine." I had a light; it has become dim, but it was coming up again. Man, I have to tell you, I wrote a book entitled "Light Up Your Life," and it is exactly about that. That we are all born with a special, God-given talent. However, our life experiences sometimes covers that light up. And so instead of doing what we were born to do, then we do things what we want to do or have to do. But the idea of it is that, you know, a lot of us miss our true calling in life. And but if you can find it, then you can live a more fulfilled purpose driven life. And okay. with, with that said, when you speak about we're all born with this light, I think my light was dimmed. On March the 3rd, 1976, when my mother died. Wow. And that's what loss, a major loss can do that. Right. But I have to say to that, um, you know, sometimes, you know, as a, as a counselor, as a therapist, I, when I console people about a loss of any kind, is that the idea that 
you know, when you lose somebody, you know, especially a parent, you know, we know that we're going to pass away. I mean, nobody wants to die, but we do know that we're going to pass away. And so the idea of us passing away, we want our children to to not go astray, to not, you know, be angry. I mean, maybe early on, that's okay. You know, you're angry. You know, those are normal feelings of grief. But the idea is that, you know, your mother knew that she would die, if not for breast cancer, for, you know, old age or something like that. And the idea is, is to understand that you, you had the blessing of your mother, you know, I lost my mother when I was nine. Just boom. She didn't suffer breast cancer or any. She just had an aneurysm and boom, she was gone. So the idea is that, you know, you understand or try. I mean, you, you were too young to know and I was too young to know. And who knows? But the idea is that our parents know they're going to die and pass away. And the idea is for us to now carry the torch and not to go astray. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Right. However, what, what, what plays a big part in losing a parent is how old you are when you lose them. Okay. That plays a big part. And um, like you said, you were nine. And um, anybody that loves their mother, this is anybody that loves their mother, that's a hard pill to swallow. No doubt. Let me tell you, my mother taught me everything I I knew how to do back then. She taught me how to play chess. She taught me how to cook so I wouldn't wake up on Saturdays, you know, so she could make me breakfast. I knew how to make pancakes, French toast, bacon, and eggs. Uh, she died when I was nine, but I knew how to do all of that before I was nine. So, yes, it was a major law. We all ha- we handled death. We handled death differently. That, that really and, is the bottom line. And back then, like I said, there was no... Grief counseling. There was uh-huh. no, grief counseling. Was like, boy, you still crying? Man, be yeah. quiet. She's gone. <laughs> that's that's the counsel. Man up. Yeah, much. man, man up. Pretty much. But now, you know, back to what we were talking about about prison. First, let me just say this: like, in no fashion, form, or way, am I. Um, when I said it was it was fun or whatever, am I fast? Am I fascinated? Am I selling the prison thing or anything? Because let me tell you, I'm, I'm an advocate to say that. Listen, please. If you don't have to get into that system, because it's the easiest system to get into and the hardest one to get out of, um, is it is it um something that young men strive to do nowadays? There's a thing. There's a saying that back in the days, brothers was in the law library. They were doing everything they could do to kick them doors down to get out of prison. Now they say young brothers are kicking the door in to get in the prison, which makes absolutely totally no sense. So with that said. Um, I mean, you, I mean, you you have a good job now. You're doing well. You're married. You're a homeowner, and I, I think that's a heck of a turnaround for a young man that spent, you know, a good part of his young adult life um, as incarcerated. And it's difficult for young people. I mean, things are lightening up now because society is becoming more aware that everybody deserves a second chance, and there are so many programs and grants for for um you know ex-offenders who come out of prison now where they can get a second chance and get a job but you you got a job at a time where that wasn't fashionable you you understand exactly. so so what do you say what do you say to that that you were able to turn it around and and how you doing now just as we you know bring the show to to an end well i will say and not boasting i'm doing fantastic um i'm doing great um Life is not without its challenges, but um, I could deal with them a whole lot better without having a clouded mind and you know being all drugged up. But um, what happens is that you have to you have to come to a place in life 
where there's a fork. One street is the same old thing. The other is change. Change has to take place. In my case, I went to a telly house. It was like being a, I'm going to use it as like um, a caterpillar. The the program was like like the cocoon, and and when while a caterpillar is in a cocoon, it, it, it met it's a metamorphosis that takes place, and it changes. And when it's in a caterpillar stage, it's really invulnerable to be stepped on and crushed. But once it comes out of this cocoon, it can now ascend to greater heights because it has wings and it's a butterfly. And the same thing with going into this program. I took in a lot of the things that was there. I took in, you know, a lot of the things they had to offer by way of the curriculum. And um one of the biggest things I took out was a thing called ABC. Now that's not ABC one, two, three for Michael Jackson. No, that's the activating event, the belief and the consequences. And these are the things that I live by and I pattern my life by the things that happen to you in life or the activating event, the belief system is what you believe it is. And if your belief system is screwed up, consequently, you're either going to suffer from some of the um, punishments of a screwed up belief system or the reward of being able to de-dispute the thought, the disputation of thought. So I learned all these things and I brought that out with me. Like I, unlike I did in the prior coming out of the prison, I did. I was determined because let me tell you something. Your, my desire was to never go back to prison. My discipline allowed me to do that. I became disciplined enough to never touch drugs again. I became disciplined enough to know how to respect other people. I became disciplined enough to know how to respect other people. And I just made a conscious decision that I was not going back and that I was going to make some form of contribution to the society that's coming up behind me, which is what I try to do today. So let me ask you now, um, if you could say anything to your mother you know, now, I mean, because her question was to you, what are you going to do with your life? You know, what would you say to your mother? I would say, Mom, I don't know, but, but time will tell. But, I mean, having come through what you have come through, what would you say to her? Look at me now. There you go. <laughs> Look at me now, Ma. And, and, and maybe, like I said, I'm one of eight, and none of the other seven did went this way, And but they never turned their back on me, and I'm back. And let me, all eight of us are still living today, and Mom, look at me now. Your son is doing what he needs to do, and you would be extremely proud if you were here to see it. And I think that is just absolutely wonderful. What a story. What a turnaround. I just want to thank you so much, thank you. Brother Equan, for having the courage to come on the show and talk about your life. I mean, for, for so many of us, you know, life is good for some, but not so good for others, you know. And um, But the bottom line is that it was it was a result of the choices you made. It wasn't because you was black, you know, that that could be you know, that used to hold us down, you know, because we black. We couldn't get ahead. But it wasn't because you were black. It wasn't because of anything other than the choices that you made. And I think it is so important for us to understand that life comes down to the choices we make. And with that said, we're gonna call it a wrap. Thanks for tuning in once again, my friend. And I always like to say, don't hurt nobody. We'll see you the next time. Talk to you later. As we wrap up this show, I hope this topic helped you to grow. 
And now you know a little bit more than you knew before. If you have any questions about this topic, please email me at changeagentrtg at gmail.com. See my website, relationshipreadiness.org. To learn more about my counseling, consulting, and educational programs related to life, love, and work, Finally, in the words of the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., if I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word or song, if I can show somebody he is traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. Until we meet again, do the right thing when nobody is looking. Peace. Beloved.